We left off last week with Jesus and his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. Beautiful plot of land, secluded, just to the east of the city of Jerusalem. And there Jesus has brought his disciples to spend these few moments preparing for what is to come. And we saw that there in the garden, Jesus has perfectly submitted himself to the will of his Father. We know that because how does he conclude his prayer? It is with these words, not my will, yet not my will, but yours be done. Jesus is resolved to go to the cross for us. We saw his relentless devotion for those he would redeem. And from this time on, you should realize now that Jesus has embraced the Father's plan of redemption. And and now with that renewed strength, he rises and he goes out to meet his approaching fate. And that's what we're going to examine in the Word of God this morning. Let's stand together, though, and read our text. Mark chapter 14, verses 41 through 52 in the Word of God. There we read of our Lord. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a crowd with swords and clubs, who were from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now he who was betraying him had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away under guard. After coming, Judas immediately went to him, saying, Rabbi, and kissed him. They laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Jesus said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me? As you would against a robber? Every day I was with you in the temple, teaching, and you did not seize me. But this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures. And they all left him and fled. A young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body, and they seized him, but he pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. That's the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's seek our Lord's help in prayer. Our Father, we must confess to you this morning that we are not faithful as we should be, but we do approach you as the one who is faithful. Lord, you've told us that your mercies are new every morning. If your faithfulness was not as great as it is, Lord, we would be consumed in a moment because of our sins, because of our treachery against you. Father, I pray that you would magnify the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to your people this morning, while, Lord, we ask that you would do a deep and lasting work in our hearts regarding our faithfulness to you. Would you convict us where our hearts are not devoted, Lord? Would you bring us to greater devotion? And if there be any soul in our midst who's maybe close to Jesus, but not true. Lord, we pray that you would draw them to a true and genuine relationship with your Son. As we ask in Jesus' name, amen. The only war memorial anywhere in the United States without naming the person it honors is a monument to a traitor. 
Benedict Arnold is infamously remembered during the American Revolution as one of our nation's most notorious traitors. In fact, his very name is tied to treachery. And because of that, some of us are perhaps not aware of Arnold's impressive service before selling his country to the British for money. You see, Benedict Arnold was a general in the Continental Army. He played a key role in several battles, one of which was the very pivotal battle of Saratoga. It was pivotal in turning the tide in the American Revolution. And Arnold was in that battle fighting. He was leading a charge. He was shot in the leg. Well, for all his bravery and achievements, it appears that Arnold wasn't really fighting for his country, was he? He wasn't fighting for his country, as it turned out, so much as fighting to make a name for himself, as so much as he was out for being honored. He wanted to be honored. And when his countrymen, history tells us, denied him that honor, he in turn denied them his loyalty. The story is... He sold his country for 20,000 British pounds in the pension of a general. You've heard the story before. It's a very familiar tale. It continues to play out in our world. A man selling his country. A man betraying his wife. A wife betraying her husband. Children betraying their parents. Friend betraying friend. It happens all the time. There's nothing uncommon to this in our world. All for some price. We will betray those we love. Some form of personal pleasure or profit, whatever it is, treachery is common in our world. But the treachery we're about to examine this morning is really the betrayal of the ages. It's the betrayal of the ages because it's the betrayal that is far worse than any other. We could say it is far more tragic. It remains the most tragic of betrayals and it remains the most common of betrayals. It's playing out in our world all the time. And before we examine this betrayal, I want us to pick up our story where we left off in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember in verse 40 that Mark has told us Jesus returns, he rebukes his disciples for sleeping once again, and he tells us that Peter, James, and John here did not know what to answer them. They didn't know what to answer him, just as they didn't know what to answer Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration when they saw him and they uh, appeared in all their weakness. Well, here, once again, in their weakness, they are at a loss for what to say. And verse 41, where our text begins, tells us, And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. He asks, Are you still resting? Are you still sleeping? Because this is the third time that Jesus has come to them to call them out of their senses, and it's the third time he's found them senseless, asleep. Jesus is demonstrating that he, once again, doesn't give up on his disciples. He doesn't give up on his students. He's so persistent, isn't he? But we have an incredible contrast here. Jesus will keep going back into the ring. He's sweating blood. He's taking emotional blows, as it were, in this time of prayer, because he's resolute about doing what the Father's called him to do, And meanwhile, the disciples keep hitting the snooze button. They keep going back to sleep. What a contrast. Finally, Jesus comes to them this third time, and he declares, the hour has come 
which is to say the hour of his passion. This is the hour that he has been preparing them for. He's been telling them about this for a long time. And now he says, that hour is here. And he calls all the disciples to rise, all 11 that were here in the garden. In verse 42, he says, get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. And he's not saying, get up, let's get out of here. We got to get out of here before this mob comes. No, Jesus is saying, get up. I want you to meet the one who betrays me. Talk about suspense. Jesus has already announced that one of them will betray him. And now he says, I want you to meet the one who's going to betray me. And the next several verses will unfold this tragedy. It's the tragedy of the man Judas Iscariot. And I believe I can say it is far worse, far more tragic than the tragedy of Julius Caesar or Macbeth or any other tragedy we know of. This is what we're going to look at. This is the most tragic of betrayals ever. And there are four tragedies in our story, I could say. Our story involves four tragedies which make this the most tragic betrayal ever. The first we encounter is the man behind this betrayal. The man behind this betrayal was a close companion to Jesus. And it's tragic, isn't it, that one so close to Jesus could betray him. Verse 43, immediately while he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a crowd with swords and clubs who were from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. The religious authorities here certainly had previous opportunities to lay hands on Jesus and arrest him. But they feared the crowds, and much of the Jewish populace had problems with the Sanhedrin already. We've seen that in the temple. There was a lot of extortion. There was a lot of corruption in the religious system just as there are in religions all around the world today. And especially those from Galilee here gathered for the Feast of Passover were upset about this. And they knew it was not good for them to grab Jesus and create a riot. And so they didn't want to arrest Jesus in public. At least they couldn't arrest him here during the Passover season with all these from Galilee gathered here. And what they really needed then was an inside man. They needed someone close to Jesus who would allow them to grab him at an opportune time. Someone close. That man turned out to be Judas Iscariot, one of Jesus' own twelve. The Bible says Judas, one of the twelve. Judas was among Jesus' closest companions. And you know what? He didn't stick out like a sore thumb. I think it's interesting that in a lot of Christian art and depictions and dramas over the years, you can always pick out Judas because he's the one sulking in the quarter. You know, he's the one with the shifty eyes. That's Judas. You can read him like a book. But I believe, honestly, that if you were to line up all the 12 disciples at any point in Jesus' ministry, you wouldn't be able to pick out Judas as that's the guy that's going to betray Jesus. In fact, I know we couldn't because the Gospel of John tells us that no one suspected Judas. When Jesus announced in the upper room, just a few hours before this event we're looking at, that one of his very twelve would betray him, no one expected Judas. What happened is, Judas rises to leave. 
during the, the supper. He's going to go out. He's going to do his dirty work. He's going to inform the high priest. Uh, now is the time to grab Jesus. I'll take you to him. We've got to get the Roman cohort. They had a lot of details to do in place. And Jesus says this to Judas. As Judas is making his exit, he says, what you do, do quickly. But John says in John 13, 28, none of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose Jesus had said this to him. For some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need of, or else that he should give something to the poor. Judas had the money box. Now, who else do you trust with your money except the most trustworthy of a person? You don't trust just anybody with your money. Judas was entrusted with Jesus' money. And when Jesus said, one of you will betray me at this table. And all these 12 guys are here. No one expected Judas. Judas was trusted. In fact, Judas was so close to Jesus that he even performed miracles in Jesus' name. Back in Mark chapter 6, we saw that Jesus sent out his 12 in pairs and gave them authority to cast out demons and to heal the sick. And you know what? They did it. They witnessed and performed miracles in Jesus' name. And none of the Gospels, none of the Gospels say the disciples performed miracles in Jesus' name. Oh yeah, except Judas. Except Judas. He was a dud. He didn't have that kind of power. He didn't witness that. No. The Gospels don't tell us that because Judas did witness wonders and even performed wonders in Jesus' name. God allowed him to do so. Judas was so close to Jesus, you see, that he exercised the power of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. And I believe that's partly why the author of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 6, makes this stunning statement. And, and, and it's where he's warning those who come so close to Jesus about finally falling away in the end and eternally perishing. And this is what he writes in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. I believe Judas represents all those, and I quote, those who have been once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, never to be renewed again. What a tragedy to come so close to Jesus and to witness his power only to fall away forever. And the warning to us is this. You can be so close to Jesus without actually being true to him. You can grow up in the church. You can be involved in the church. You can attempt great things for God and achieve great things for God without a genuine relationship with God through his son Christ. This has happened. You wouldn't be the first. In the scariest sermon ever preached, Jesus warned in Matthew 7, 22, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Interesting. Jesus says, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. You who practice lawlessness. A few years back, I was preaching that text from Matthew 7 at a youth camp, and I was approached afterwards by a, a youth pastor who told me his story. He said, I was a pastor in full-time ministry, 
and I heard a sermon preached on this text that you're preaching tonight. And he said, I realized then I wasn't converted. I didn't know Jesus Christ in a genuine way. That man had to be born again. You say, is that possible for a pastor to make it to the ministry, be preaching and doing things for God and not know Jesus Christ? Absolutely. It has happened. Judas was so close to Jesus without being true to him. I know that's scary to think about, but can I say this? In all honesty and love, it is better to be scared now than to be surprised later and to hear those words from Jesus, depart from me, I never knew you. That was Judas. We've seen the man behind this betrayal, so close to Jesus, what a tragedy. But a second tragedy that makes this betrayal most tragic is the motive. The motive for this betrayal was selling Jesus for some idol. And we're not going to see this exactly from these verses here in Mark 14. But if we take into account what we've seen in the gospel so far of Judas Iscariot, this becomes very clear. That Judas had a motive to sell Jesus for something he loved more. And that's tragic. Anything that you could be motivated to exchange Jesus for whatever it is, that's tragic because of who Jesus is. Well, I, I do want to be clear. Judas did value Jesus. Don't get the impression that Judas never said to Jesus, I love you. Judas did. Uh, don't get the impression that Judas just was always insincere. He never sincerely wanted to follow Jesus. Judas had stuck it out with Jesus for three years without a salary, without a dwelling place. Who would you follow for three years without a salary? Judas was all in. He was devout in some respects. Judas was all about Jesus, at, at least at one point in his life. We can say he truly, he did value Jesus. The problem was Judas valued something more. Than Jesus. You see? He valued something more than Jesus. And while our immediate text again doesn't disclose this, we can decipher this at least from three glimpses in Judas' life. First, remember that bag of money which Judas carried that was entrusted to him? Well, John tells us in John 12, 6, that Judas began at some point stealing money from that bag. He began taking money out of the money box. And at some point, that suggests to us that Judas became less interested in loyalty to Jesus, being true to Jesus, and more interested in securing material gain for himself. And I'm sure he had his reasons. Don't dehumanize him. There's very human reasons, very relatable reasons why sinners do what sinners do. Judas didn't have horns on his head and a tail. Judas was very close to Jesus, but I'm sure that some weeks were very hard. He thought, you know, this has been a very hard week. I think I earned it. I think I earned scraping a little off the top. Secondly, another glimpse we see into Judas' life, John tells us, is that when Mary poured out a year's worth of wages of pure nard upon Jesus, anointing him to show her lavish love, her extravagant love for Jesus, that she valued him of inestimable worth. John tells us that Judas complained. When he saw this extravagant love, he said, this was wasted. This was wasted. Isn't it ironic? He knew the price of the nard, but not 
the worth of Jesus. Judas said, this is a waste. He can only see Mary's extravagant gift as a waste because for Judas, Jesus wasn't worth that much. Oh, Jesus is worth something, but not that much. Thirdly, Matthew tells us, in Matthew 26, 15, that Judas went to the chief priest and asked, what will you be willing to give me? What will you be willing to give me to betray him to you? Judas put a price on Jesus, didn't he? There was some point at which Judas was ready to sell Jesus. And anything for which you would sell out on Jesus, that's your price. Some have sold Jesus for keeping the peace in their family. Some have sold Jesus for an easier life, period. Some have sold Jesus for a one-night fling or whatever, some relationship, for some sensual pleasure. Some have sold Jesus for fame, for money. Yes, even 30 pieces of silver at a time. And what doesn't matter is whether it's 30 pieces of silver or 3 million pieces of silver, anything for which you sell Christ is your idol. That is your God. A missionary to the Congo once met a man carrying a neat-looking stick, and he stopped the man and said, Excuse me, sir, is there any significance to that elaborate stick you're carrying there? And the man replied, Yes, this is my God. So the missionary said, Well, what would you be willing to take for your God? He offered the man some money and bought his God. <laughs> the man sold his God. And uh, that sounds rather ridiculous, doesn't it? But what it proved was that the stick wasn't that man's God, was it? Money was. Because anything for which you will sell your God, that's your God. This man's God was money. And if we think that's silly, please realize that you can call Jesus, my Lord and my God. But if at any point you are unwilling to follow his commands as your Lord and your God, you've proven the fact to yourself. He is not your Lord and your God. Something else is. If there's any point in your life at which you're willing to say, that's too much for Jesus, that's too far for Jesus, he's not worth that. If at any point in your life you would sell Jesus, that's your God. Whatever you would sell him for, that is your idol, that is your God. That was Judas. Judas valued his life over Jesus. So that when it came to choosing between the two, the choice was easy. And Judas sold Jesus. You know, he liked the idea of power and prosperity that would come with following a miracle worker. Who wouldn't? You know how many quote-unquote Christians there are in our world that are all about Jesus Christ so long as he gives me wealth, he gives me an easy life, he blesses me, he keeps the peace. Or maybe it's just because everybody else in my social club is, is Christian. I'm about Jesus because of every reason other than that, he's my Lord and he's my God. For many supposed Christians, Jesus is like the genie in the lamp, and they just want him to do their bidding rather than the other way around. Well, Judas wasn't interested in a suffering Jesus. He wasn't interested in suffering for Jesus' sake. He didn't want to follow a suffering Messiah who had a martyr complex, one who was willing to offer himself as a Passover lamb. Judas said, this is not what I signed up for. And he sold Jesus for some idol. We've seen the man behind this betrayal and the motive for this betrayal. But a third tragedy that makes this betrayal most tragic is 
the manner of this betrayal, the manner of this betrayal was insulting to Jesus. Verses 43 through 46 describe two different insults. First, a show of force. A show of force as if Jesus is to be treated as some violent criminal. Verse 43 tells us immediately, while Jesus was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, came up, accompanied by a crowd with swords who were from the chief priests and elders and the scribes. Judas knew where to find Jesus after the Passover meal, and so he leads this gang, this armed gang, to Gethsemane. And this crowd following Judas, which is from the chief priests, scribes, and the elders, is sent by the Sanhedrin. That is the elite ruling body of religious authorities, those who oversaw the temple, these guys are powerful. This is like the Jewish mafia. And they're about to crush Jesus. And the Sanhedrin did have at their disposal a temple guard. That would be those who were armed with clubs here. Though John tells us the Sanhedrin also had secured a Roman cohort, which was a battalion of troops typically numbering 600 strong. This is serious. This detail suggests to us, and that would be those who were armed with swords here, by the way, but this detail suggests here that serious forces are at work behind Jesus' capture. Can you see the, the political machinery uniting against Christ? Apparently, the high priest had already informed Pilate of the need to arrest this man, Jesus the Nazarene. He is some insurrectionist threat. I will prove that to you. And Pilate and the Romans, of course, they had no appetite for more insurrections, which were very common in Palestine. And they don't mess around. Pilate gives to the high priest, he gives to the disposal of Judas and the high priest 600 men to make sure that nothing goes wrong. The plan is then to come in with this show of force, and sees Jesus as if he were some violent criminal, some insurrectionist. That's an insult to our Lord. But the second insult we see here was a show of affection. A show of affection where Jesus is treated as some ignorant fool, has no clue of what's going on. Look at verse 44. Now he who was betraying him had given them a signal saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away under guard. It's dark, remember. And, and many in this mob have never seen Christ. How are they to know they have the right guy? The plan is for Judas first to come forward and to identify Jesus, and then the troops are going to come in and grab him and, and take him away. And Judas' M.O. here that he chose was to approach Jesus with affection, a show of affection, the signal would be far more subtle than to simply walk up and say, there's the guy, bind him, take him away. No, Judas says, the sign will be a kiss. Where the token of friendship becomes the symbol of history's greatest treachery. Verse 45 says, after coming, Judas immediately went to him saying, Rabbi, and kissed him. Judas hails Jesus with this respectful title, very most respectful title in the ancient Near East, kisses him, another way of showing affection. And Mark here uses an intensified form of the word kiss, which suggests that this was no small peck on the cheek, 
But this was rather a very dramatic and affectionate scene. It was a fervent show of affection. But you know, the Bible says the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. That's what's happening here. And I think we can say that Judas is, in some sense, insulting Jesus by making a mockery of him. You know, the whole thing is a bit odd. If you step back and think about it, it's a bit odd that Judas would want to approach Jesus in this way. He's got to know Jesus knows what's going on. Until you realize from John 13, 27, that Satan entered into Judas. Judas is a man, yes, responsible for his actions, but he's a man operating by satanic design. So that this was perhaps a satanic gesture of mockery. And it would be then only the very first of many mockeries to follow. The way Satan will mock Jesus through the mouths of people is, is terrible. And that all begins here. Christian, be warned. Anybody can put on a show of affection. Anybody can tell you I love you. But true affection is proven by faithfulness. That's how you measure true love, faithfulness. It's not what somebody pledges at the altar. It's where are they to be found 10, 20, 30 years later in sickness and health and poverty and wealth, all that. Well, Jesus looked right through this, of course, and Luke twenty two forty eight 48 says that Jesus even said to Judas, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? He knew. Jesus knew Judas, just as he knows your heart. So verse 46, they laid hands on him and seized him. They'd been waiting for this moment for a long time. How many times in the Bible does it tell us they wanted to lay hands on him, but they could not, for his hour had not yet come. Well, this is their hour. The time has now come, and Jesus has fallen into their hands. We've seen the man behind this betrayal and the motive for this betrayal and the manner of this betrayal, all of which make this event most tragic. But finally, this betrayal was most tragic because the aftermath to this betrayal, the aftermath to this betrayal was itself tragic. We'll see that in verses 47 through 52, which pass like a blur. This happens so quickly. I think it's important to kind of keep that in mind. Jesus' disciples are going to exhibit for us what we call a fight-or-flight response. As this is really a matter of life and death in these moments, verse 47 tells us, but one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. <laughs> this is Peter's desperate fight. And Luke tells us that Jesus' disciples had two swords. We're told that in the upper room, uh, Luke twenty-two thirty-six, Jesus actually told his disciples... If you need to, go and sell a coat, get a sword. Did you know Jesus said that? He said, buy a sword, carry a sword. Why? They will need to defend themselves. The Bible says that. Self-defense is biblical. Luke tells us in this moment that as Jesus is being taken, the disciples say, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? And John tells us, that this one who drew his sword, doesn't wait for an answer, was none other than Simon Peter. And we probably could have guessed that, couldn't we? Even if John hadn't told us that because of what we know about Peter's impulsive character. Peter doesn't wait 
to be told what to do. He is out there. He's in the line of action. Peter doesn't wait for an answer. He rushes forward. He takes a swing at the nearest target, and that happened to be poor Malchus, a servant of the high priest. And uh, he removes his ear. What was Peter thinking here? Well, Mark's details are sparse, but John records that when Judas kissed Jesus, Jesus didn't wait to be seized. They didn't just come in and seize him. Before they could do that, Jesus steps forward and says to this approaching mob who has now identified him, whom do you seek? John 18, 4. John 18, 5. They answered, Jesus the Nazarene. And he said, I am. John tells us at that moment, they drew back and fell to the ground. When he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. What was so powerful about Jesus saying, I am? Well, if you know your Bible, you'll know that in the Old Testament, this was God's reply to Moses. Who will I tell them? Sent me to them. And he says, you tell them, I am that I am. That's who sent you. And Jesus is the great I am. When he merely utters these words, his enemies fall back. That is no question then about Jesus' deity. If you understand what's going on here in the greater scenes and comparing the Gospels, Jesus is clearly God. He's clearly sovereign even over this situation. And seeing this whole thing unfold surely would have emboldened Peter. Can you imagine seeing everyone fall back to the ground before Christ? No wonder Peter had renewed resolve to jump into the crowd. It's like he's expecting a miracle to happen. He's expecting one to chase a thousand. Peter is therefore willing to throw his life on the line. He, he begins swinging, and, and the first stroke he takes glances off the side of this guy's head, slicing his ear. But Jesus cries, stop. No more of this, Luke tells us. He, Jesus wanted Peter to know, my kingdom is not advanced by the sword. True Christianity has never been advanced by the sword, has it? You will meet people who will tell you things like, well, Christianity was advanced by crusades and colonialism. Don't you realize that? And this shows us they don't understand what Christianity is. They are redefining it as something institutional, some institutional political organization. But Jesus would have us to know that Christianity is a true relationship with him. It is a true relationship with Christ. When you realize that, you realize it's impossible to enforce that by the sword. You can't spread a personal relationship with Christ by the sword. You can't do it. So Jesus immediately cries, stop, no more of this, because Christians taking the sword like Peter are actually the greatest hindrance to the spread of the gospel. Stop, no more of this, Luke twenty-two fifty-one. And amazingly, things don't escalate into a bloodbath because both sides are immediately arrested by Jesus and what he does next. Jesus stoops down, touches Malchus' ear, and heals him. Jesus shows love to his enemies. The one who said, love your enemies, yes, that's the way he lived. And this is, as far as we know, the final miracle of our Lord in his earthly life. And it is one he performs upon his enemy. You have to wonder, what on earth was Malchus, the servant of the high priest, thinking at this point? Was he ever the same? 
I wonder if we'd see Malchus in heaven someday. Because the Lord used this to touch his heart. You can imagine everyone is quite a bit taken back. Jesus says to Peter, John tells us in John 18, 11, in the same breath, put the sword away. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Peter, don't you realize that this is the cup to which I have submitted? It is the cup I will drink for your redemption. And he says, don't you realize that I could appeal to my Father? He could send 12 legions of angels. But this must happen. This must happen which was predicted in the scriptures. Matthew 26, 53 and 54 tells us that. So sandwiched between the disciples' fight or flight responses here then, we have this, this response of Christ, and we see his divine repose. Look at verses 48 and 49. And Jesus said to them, verse 48, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me, as you would a robber? Every day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me? But this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures. He's no criminal. He's no violent character. He preached love your enemies. He lived it. But Jesus also knows here that they have come because this is God's sovereign plan from Scripture. This is the hour in which he is to give himself to them. This had to happen. But humanly speaking, it's worth mentioning that there are two reasons the Sanhedrin didn't arrest Jesus until this very moment. You see, first of all, they feared the people. They couldn't take Jesus at just any time. They needed to take him in private. They didn't want to create a riot because they feared Jesus' popularity, particularly with Jews from Galilee. But even if they had sought to find a time away from the crowds where they could just seize Jesus, it's also likely they feared Jesus' power. Commentators and scholars don't give enough attention to this detail. I think this is very important. Of course they would have feared Jesus' power. Jesus has performed many miracles throughout his ministry. And you know what? Even though the Sanhedrin officially denied that his miracles came from God, they never denied his miracles. They knew his power. That fact was self-evident. What did they do? Mark chapter 3 tells us their official verdict was that Jesus' miracles came from the power of Satan. That's what Jesus does. That's how he gets his power. And you can still see this view Uh, that Judaism had about Jesus reflected in ancient Jewish writings. That was their verdict. My point is this. God sovereignly worked it out that at this time, at this time, they could actually grab Jesus. They didn't have to fear Jesus' popularity. The crowds were now nowhere to be seen, thanks to Judas. And in terms of Jesus' power, they didn't have to fear his power being used against them because Judas must have assured them. When he came to betray Jesus just the day before and cut this deal with them, he must have assured them, Jesus has a martyr's complex. You don't understand. Jesus sees himself as a Messiah who is to give himself as a sacrificial lamb. He's even said he intends to do that on Passover. You don't have to fear Jesus. Jesus will give himself to you. This news would have sounded only too good to the ears of the high priest who does arrange for a Roman cohort to escort Jesus. He does work with the Roman government here. He wants Roman soldiers just in case things didn't go as planned. It's also fascinating, isn't it? The details are so intricate. All the politics here, everything coming together, but understand beyond all that's humanly coming together in this moment of Jesus' betrayal and arrest, 
is ultimately God's predetermined plan. It was to happen. Jesus knew that, and that's how he here remains calm. He knows this is God's plan. Jesus is calm, but his disciples aren't feeling it. So we see in verses 50 and 52, here's the disciples' desperate flight. Got this fight and flight response going on. And here they flee. Verse 50 says, and they all left him and fled. Jesus' task force. The guys appointed, handpicked by Jesus to change the world, they all abandon him in his hour of greatest need. And, and that's just consistent. That's a consistent portrait. Mark has been showing us this is by design. Don't forget it. It's where he's bringing us for his conclusion of the gospel. Jesus' disciples just keep failing, don't they? Now verses 51 and 52 report a very odd detail. It's only found in Mark's gospel. A young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body. And they seized him, but he pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. We can't be certain as to the young man's identity, but many, and more recently, have identified this as John Mark, as the one who is writing down Peter's testimony. If that's the case, Mark is also an eyewitness to many of these things himself. At least to the, he's an eyewitness to the passion of the Christ. And if that's the case, we would understand him as making his own cameo appearance. He's kind of playing a cameo role in his, in his gospel here. We've already said that, that it's likely the upper room where Jesus has just held the Passover meal is the very one in Acts that belonged to the mother of John Mark. This was John Mark's home where Jesus held the Passover. So I don't think it's unreasonable to say that this young man, he would have been a boy at the time, John Mark, follows Jesus at some point into the garden at a distance. You know, he's out there. He's kind of got this, uh, this, this linen sheet that was wrapped around him. It was kind of like a bathrobe, a loose, loosely worn clothing at night. And this kid slips away into the night. But suddenly, as he's following Jesus at a, at a distance, one of the soldiers spies him and grabs him, and the boy slips out of his clothes, leaves his coat behind, and runs out into the night. And uh, again, very likely, this, this could be Mark. If this is Mark, I just want to say this, it wouldn't be the last time he would abandon Jesus. Because Mark will abandon Paul and Barnabas on their very first missionary journey. And it was so bad that when Mark came around and repented, said, I'm sorry, Paul said, I don't care, I'm not taking you. You know, you're a flake. You're going to fail again. You're going to fall away. I don't trust you. And even though Barnabas would take him, uh, Paul wouldn't. Well, at some point, it appears in church history that Peter would eventually take Mark under his wing. In fact, even in 1 Peter 5.13, Peter concludes his first epistle by mentioning Mark, his son. Very likely talking about this very one, John Mark. Paul wouldn't mentor Mark. Peter did. They end up working together in this gospel. I think it's, it's a neat detail. I just want to say this. That even though this young man flees naked, which is a, a symbol in the Bible of shame, he forsook Christ. We understand why, but he, he forsakes Christ. They'll do it again. The story is a happy ending for John Mark. He will turn out to be a faithful follower of Jesus. Whatever happened to Judas, though? Before we conclude, we do need to tie up this one loose end. This is the final appearance he makes in Mark's gospel. Well, I want you to understand he does come to a tragic end. And Matthew and John tell us that Judas 
hung around to see what would happen. What would become of Jesus? We don't know exactly why. Maybe he was curious. Maybe he was beginning to feel the first pricks of guilt. But something happened which Judas hadn't considered. And that is he didn't understand what guilt could do in his life. He hadn't calculated. For all he planned out in his betrayal Christ, he hadn't calculated how he would live with himself. And I'll just read for you Matthew 27, 3 through 5. Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and, and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, what is that to us? See to that yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed. And he went away and hanged himself. Judas very calculated man, thought of so many things, thought of how to make a profit out of this whole situation, didn't take into account how he could live with himself by selling Jesus. This oversight led to his suicide. That's humanity's problem, isn't it? We know what looks good. We know what we want to do. But we seldom think ahead. The Bible says there is a way that seems right to a man and its ends are the ways of death. That's Judas. Tragedy. That's a tragedy to so many in this world. They sell Jesus for something sweet, not realizing that in the bargain, they're giving away their own soul. Jesus said, what is it going to profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Foolishness. Tragic. This is the most tragic of betrayals ever. To think that someone so close to Jesus could end up selling him for some idol while making a mockery of him by pretending to be his devout follower and instead of ever truly repenting to despair and hang himself and end up in hell. That's a tragedy. I think that's the greatest tragedy possible. I understand that a message here on betraying Jesus is exactly heartwarming, But can I say this? It happens all the time. And I'm very thankful then that God has recorded this story for us because I I know that God knows we need it in this day and age especially. Look, we live in a country where real persecution hasn't even started and yet people are falling away from faith in Christ for any reason under the sun, especially young people. They go to the universities or go into the quote-unquote world and they forsake Jesus for the world. And all its allurements. You see, it's the same story. It's the tragedy of Judas Iscariot being played out once again and again and again. We need to learn. Jesus wants a personal, genuine, eternal relationship with you. No games, no tricks, no, no farce. Come on. Not pressing anybody here in the church. Jesus Christ wants you. He wants a genuine, eternal, personal relationship with each one of of us here. And if you're not certain that you have that genuine relationship with Jesus, don't be afraid of what anybody thinks. Approach somebody. Tell somebody about it. You're among friends here, and you certainly don't want to play the same tragic game as Judas.